This morning is our last sermon from the book of Ruth. So far we learned a couple of things. We learned, number one, about God's providentially and sovereign work, that God providentially and sovereignly works through the affairs of men and women. We see that with Ruth and, and, and Boaz. Uh, and he does it to accomplish his overall will. Second thing we learned a couple of weeks ago is we examined Ruth and Boaz's relationship and learned about some of the qualities of a godly relationship, like integrity, loyalty, and faithfulness. And last week we looked to Ruth and learned how uh, she expressed her faith in God, in Yahweh, and how true faith expresses itself. So we looked over a number of qualities there. This morning, I'd like us to finish our series by looking at Boaz, but particularly looking at the kinsman redeemer. 20 times the Hebrew word redeemer, or a form of the Hebrew word redeemer, is used in the four chapters of Ruth. 20 times. So all that repetition would tell us one thing. A big theme of the book of Ruth is redemption. The big theme of the book of Ruth is redemption. So we're going to finish our four-part series of Ruth by looking at Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. So let's go ahead, if you're not already there, open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. We're going to read the first 10 verses together of that chapter. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. We stand in honor of the Lord as we go, as we seek His presence in His Word. Okay? Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So when Naomi... Pause, pause, pause. Get the picture now, okay? So when she came back at the end of chapter 1, she really had nothing this land, but the land really didn't do any good. She, she couldn't do anything with it, okay? And so, let's continue on. Uh, so I thought to inform you, verse 4, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here. And before the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And then he said, I will redeem it. Verse 5, Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you must also, uh-oh, catch, catch, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. So redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilean and Malon. Moreover, verse 10, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. 
you are witnesses today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to praise you that we see Christ in every portion of Scripture, in every book of the Bible. Jesus is the continuity of the Word of God. And we see that Boaz is a type of Christ. In this little letter, in this small, little, seemingly insignificant story, in the time of Judges, in the dark times of Israel's history, you have this small yet bright, shining light of redemption. Oh God, no matter how bad things are in our lives, because of Christ, we always have the brightness of redemption that leads us and carries us. We have a gift of eternal life. And for that, God, we praise you and we thank you. Though our stories might be so small and insignificant to others, they fit your perfect plan, your overall plan, sending your son to die for us, to love us, to redeem us, to bring us home with you. And all God's people say, Amen. You may be seated. Now, I want you to allow me to show you something in Scripture. And it really pertains to Ruth. Okay? It really does. You're going to see that in a minute. I want to, like, approach the subject of the kinsman redeemer from the back door, so to speak. Okay? It's an analogy. I'm kind of coming in to our topic this morning through the back door. I want to show you how Christ is in every book leading up to Ruth. Okay? This is so vitally important. It's so important that Jesus kind of brings this up in John chapter 5 when he got to the religious leaders and he started talking to them and he told them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they what? And by the way, when he was talking to them in John 5, when Jesus was looking at the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and said, scriptures, scriptures, what scriptures do you think he was referring to? The Old Testament scriptures, the law of the prophets. So he says, you think by searching them, those 37 books of the Old Testament, that you have eternal life. But he says what? But they point to who? Me. Based on that, I want to show you, beginning in Genesis, going into Ruth, how we see Christ in every book. Because of time, I'm just going to start with Genesis and work our way to get to the point of Ruth, to get to the book of Ruth, excuse me. So let me give you some examples of this. And by the way, Remember when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 19 to 20, he talks about how the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation. What's he talking about there? The Word of God. And who is the cornerstone of that, by the way? Jesus Christ. So, get that picture. There's a foundation laid and you have this cornerstone. You take that cornerstone out from the Bible, what good is the foundation? It is no good. It crumbles. So over and over again, in both the Old and New Testament, it points to Christ as being the continuity, the cornerstone in every book of the Bible. So when we study the Bible, it's not just 66 individual books, it's one book. And the one who makes it one book is none other than Christ himself. Let's go to Genesis, for example. And I've got many examples per book, but I'm just going to walk away through a couple of them. Genesis leading us into Ruth. It gives us like about... Seven or eight books here. What we see in Genesis is Christ, the creator. Christ, the creator. You see that in chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis, in the beginning. Then you go to verse 26 of chapter 1. And it says this. Then God said, let 
us, the Trinity. Who's there? Christ. Let us make man in, there it is again, our image. So you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, talking about the plurality of the Trinity, saying let's make man in our image. Who's there, by the way? Who's in the beginning? Who's there in verse 1? Who's there in verse 26? Jesus, the Creator. You go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, what? He was in the beginning. The Word was in the beginning, right? And who is the Word there in John 1, 1? No other than Jesus Christ. So you have the New Testament confirming what's going on in Genesis chapter 1, that Christ is there. Christ in Genesis as Creator. You go to the book of Exodus. Christ is in Exodus as the Deliverer. What is Exodus all about? God delivering Israel out from Egypt. It's a picture of how Christ would deliver us from our sins and from death, right? And from the evil one. In Exodus, we also have the giving of the law. What's the purpose of the law according to Galatians? Chapter 2, chapter 3, excuse me. It points us to who? Christ. So when you look at Genesis, you see Christ in Genesis. When you read Exodus, you see Christ in Exodus. Amen? What about Leviticus? Oh my goodness, Christ in Leviticus. We see the sacrifices of Leviticus and the, the priests of Leviticus all what? Are a symbol or they would foreshadow Christ. Christ as the sacrifice. Christ as the high priest. All you have to do, for example, is turn to Hebrews. I'm going to read a couple of verses from there. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Listen to this. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing on. But, on the other hand, Jesus, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Wow. So when you go through the book of Leviticus, you see that all the old priests, the, the priesthood was a foreshadow or a type of the Christ to come. Let's go on and read this in Hebrews. Therefore, he is able also to save forever, not save part-time, not save partially, not save for a couple months or a couple years, but save how? Forever. Eternal security. Are you with me? Forever, those who draw near to God through him, through that high priest, through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Why is, where's Jesus at right now? He's living right now. He's in a body. He's on the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us every day because we blow it every day. And you have the accuser of the brethren up there trying to say, see, 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 look. Sinner, sinner, sinner. Christ goes, look. Purchase, purchase, purchase. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins. That's how they did it in the Old Testament. The priests had to first offer a sacrifice for what? Their own sins before they even did it for the sins of the people. Not Christ. Because he's undefiled. He's innocent. He's holy. Because he did not, the end of verse 27, because he did not once for all, I mean, because he, this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the worthy oath, the promise that was given to Abraham, he's referring to, which came after the law, appoints the son made perfect forever. Let's go on to chapter 9, for example, just 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater 
and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not the earthly one, that is to say, not of his creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, which we read about Leviticus, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. He obtained our eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? Infinitely more for eternity. See, all that we read about in Leviticus, all the sacrificial systems and all the high priests and all that they went through was all a foreshadow of the, what I call the real deal, Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus in Genesis as the creator. We see Jesus in Exodus as the deliverer. We see Leviticus. We see Christ in Leviticus as a sacrifice and a priest. What about the book of Numbers? If you want to go back to the book of Numbers and turn to chapter 21, verse 4. We read about a serpent. Let me get there. Give me a second there. Numbers. 21. With the time when the serpent was lifted up. When the serpent was lifted up, the bronze serpent, remember verse 6 and following at 21? What happened? When they looked at it, the people were what? Healed. Okay? But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how in the New Testament we read that that serpent represented who? Christ. We also read about manna in the book of Numbers. And the Gospel of John refers that manna to being who? Christ. We read about a rock in Numbers. In, in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 10, verse 4, Paul refers that Christ rock to who? Christ. So even by looking at the book of Numbers over and over again, we see Christ in the book of Numbers. What about Deuteronomy? Well, Deuteronomy is quite simple. We see Christ in Deuteronomy in that Moses is a what type of Christ? Moses is a type of Christ. I love 34.10. It talks about a prophet to come. That is Deuteronomy 34.10. Let me go ahead and turn there and read it. And if I'm going a little too fast, but so just write down the references if you can. The reason I don't have it often printed in my notes because it calms me down and I'm able to take a minute and find it myself gives you a little bit of time. But this would be uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34. There we go. The very end of the book, by the way. Verse 10. Since that time no prophet had risen in Israel like Moses and the Lord knew face to face. But all the signs that he did. So he promised in Deuteronomy a prophet to come after Moses. And Peter refers to it, to Deuteronomy in this, in this prophet to come in his sermon in chapter 3 of Acts, verse 22. Stephen does it again in Acts chapter 7, verse 37. So we see that Moses is a type of Christ. Moses was a prophet to Israel. Moses was a leader of Israel. Moses was also, actually at times, as a priest to Israel, just like Christ. So Moses was a type. Type means like. Like, a simple word, like. And, and all these are given in the Old Testament to foreshadow the one to come. 
So not only do we see it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, but also in Deuteronomy. Then we go to the book of Joshua. So just going in order, we see Christ in Joshua, and that Joshua also is a type of Christ. Let's start with his name, Jeshua, Yeshua, Yahweh, means Yahweh's salvation. That's what it means. Isn't that beautiful? He was a commander of the army of Israel who was ordered to go in there and occupy the land, to conquer the territory. What did Jesus come to do? How is Joshua a type of Christ? Jesus came to conquer sin, death, and Satan, and he did it. It's called the resurrection of Christ. Not only in Joshua, but also Judges. Judges is kind of like a type of Christ. There's seven cycles in the book of Judges. In each one of those cycles, Israel would sin and follow the grave sin. It was a terrible time. But every time they sinned, or they had a problem, or I would call it rebellion, actually. Every time they rebelled, God sent a judge to deliver them from their, from their rebellion. And over and over again, seven times it illustrates Christ as our final judge. He would, he would, he would deal with the rebellion and deliver them. Deal with the rebellion, judge it and deliver them. Judge it and deliver them. It's, it's a symbol of who? Christ. He is not only Savior, but He is who? Judge. So, over, beloved, this is one of the most important things we could learn just this morning, is that whenever you're in the Bible, look for Christ. Let's not be like the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, who he addressed in John chapter 5, when he says, you search the scriptures. Well, that's good. But if that's all we do, and we only stay there, that's bad. Every time we're in scriptures, we're there because it reveals God. It's revelation. Reveals his character, reveals his plan of redemption. And remember, all these stories in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and so on, there are a bunch of little short stories in these things, in these books, excuse me. But they're all under, under the wing of the overall story of redemption. How do we know that? Because we see Christ in every book of the Bible. And that was just a sampling. And this actually brings us to Ruth this morning. Christ in the book of Ruth. What we see here is that Boaz is a type of Christ. He is what is known as the kinsman redeemer who delivered, protected, and provided for, for Ruth and Naomi, particularly Naomi. Now, let's look at the term kinsman redeemer for a minute. Kinsman simply means this, a close relative, a close blood relative. That's what it means. And redeemer means to, to buy back something. So they're looking for a close relative, a blood relative, to buy back the land that Naomi had because she could do nothing with it. She had to sell it. Eventually she had to sell it. We read that in verse chapter 4, excuse me. And so Boaz, being a man of integrity, knew and understood that there was a blood relative closer than him to Naomi. So he had to go to him and offer it to him first. But as we read in verse 6, that close relative in chapter 4 said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. We are actually not given the reason why he said that, but it could be this, that she was a Moabite. Wait a minute. I got an inheritance coming to me, but if I marry a Moabite, it might risk what's coming to me. It's a person I don't know that well. It's a, it's a look at her. She's different. 
But what did Boaz do? He saw through the outward look of Ruth, and he saw what was inside of her. He saw a woman of excellence. He saw a woman of integrity. He saw a woman of loyalty and faithfulness to Naomi. And we learn a lesson that God looks beyond the outward. He looks what's on the heart, doesn't he? Here we have a difference between Boaz and this closer relative. They were given the name, but this closer relative said in verse 6, I just can't do it. I'll take the property. Notice the property. Yeah, I'll take that. Would you throw it in Ruth to this now? Uh, Wait a minute. Wait, time out. Uh, Second thought, uh, maybe I shouldn't because now I will risk my own inheritance. It wouldn't look good in the eyes of others if I associated this way with her. A lot of lessons for the church here again. So he says, redeem it for yourself, Boaz. You have, you have the right of redemption now. I cannot redeem it. His conscience, whatever, would not let him. I know he doesn't say, but you've got to wonder why. Because with Boaz, he had no problem with it. So that Boaz would continue the line of Elimelech by purchasing his inheritance, but also by marrying Ruth and giving an heir for the inheritance which would be open. Thus Boaz, like Moses, like Joshua, like, like others, are a type or a kind of redeemer. Right? And, 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 and became a husband to Naomi. And I want to show you, he did three things. He provided, he protected, and he purchased or redeemed. Let's look at those briefly. And then I want to go into how we can apply it today. Number one, by providing. He fed her, gave her food. Actually, she had to work for it. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. May the Lord reward your work. Men and women, God provides jobs. Work. It's through your work, the ordinary means of grace, that God provides for you. Get a job. Learn how to work. Work hard. Ruth is a good example of that. It's not like God just waved the wise over here. God is not the government that just gives. Just say Okay. Not that this all they do, but you get the point. The point is, work is not the result of the curse. Work is not the result of the fall, is it? We were told to till the ground before the fall happened. Work's a good thing. We're to till, take care of the garden, right? Then the curse happened. Work is a good thing. It was ordained by God for us to work. But notice Ruth earned her reputation partly by her hard, good work and labor. And Boaz recognized that in verse 12 of chapter 2. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord. Who's from the Lord? The God of Israel. Under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. That's a good thing. Work's a good thing. I think we're brought up today thinking work's not good. Don't ever teach your children that. Work is heartily from the Lord. Work is good. And also God gives us reward from that work so we can help others. Because sometimes not everybody can work. And I think that's one reason why the church should give more to helping others. We'll go on. By providing. We also provided the son, Obed, to whom the inheritance would go to. So, so Elimelech's lineage wouldn't just stop and halt and die there. 
So Boaz is this big, huge provider. And I want you to notice something. By the time you get to verse 10, 11, after, after the land and, and, and Ruth was given to Boaz and he had the right, notice that the writer from that point on begins towards the larger story so that by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, the end of Ruth, what we have here is the lineage leading to King David and the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself. So what he's doing here, he's connecting this little story that happened amongst a couple of people in, in, in Bethlehem in this time of the book of Judges where it was the dark ages of Israel and it's so dark that meanwhile God and his providence was working through the kinsman redeemer not just for Ruth, not just for Naomi, not just for Israel, but for the church. Because ultimately it leads to who? Christ. Christ in the book of Ruth. Oh, maybe not lose sight of this. The more important outcome is in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. And then we begin to see this as we read the short lineage, the short genealogy that ends the book. And how, and how Naomi's tragedy is turned to triumph. Look at verse 16. This is beautiful. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and began and became his nurse. And that is a beautiful picture. Grandma, basically. Mother, you know, mother. Naomi lost her husband. She couldn't have kids. She had this land, did her no good whatsoever. And back then, to carry on the lineage meant so much more than today. It really did. This was everything to them, to the Jews particularly. It was everything to them. The women got their significance by giving their men sons to carry on their lineage and to, to take their inheritance. This was huge. That's why Ruth early on in chapter 1, one said, God is, 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 is against me in verse 13. In verse 21, she says about him, the Almighty has afflicted me. Because in their mind, in the Hebrew mindset, in their culture, to be a faithful, successful wife was to give her husband a lineage, a son, to take the inheritance and to carry on with it. But it stopped in her life. It was tragic for her, but God had a plan. And she didn't even know that by having opened, that would be lead to David just a few generations ahead. And ultimately it would lead to who? Christ himself. The hand of providence in the life of these few people, seemingly in a significant story at the time, but now as we look back, it was huge. Just huge, gigantic. Really, all the short stories of life, when they fall under the heading of the big story of redemption, it's the big story of redemption that makes those little short stories significant. The significance of short stories comes from the overarching, overarching story of being a child of God, being redeemed. So that you become very significant in Christ. The key to being significant is not you, it's not me, it's Christ. It's Him being used for His glory. That's where our significance, that's where our work comes from, being in Him. Apart from Him, we don't have much work at all. It's temporal, it's fleeting, right? But in Christ, the work is eternal. It's eternal. What's the difference? It's Christ. It's Christ. 
Not only is he Boaz seen as the provider, a type of Christ who provides, he's also a protector. We see this in chapter 2, 15 and 16. Listen to this. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, the sheaves, and do not insult her. Verse 16, also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her, do not insult her, do not rebuke her. He's protecting her. He's protecting her as she comes as this Moabite woman comes alongside his Jewish woman and, and gleans along with them. He's protecting her by telling them to don't telling them not to insult her and not to rebuke her. For what? For being a Moabite. For being poor. So Boaz is protecting her. It's a beautiful picture. That's probably the reason why, again, chapter 4, verse 6, this closer relative did not want her because he did not want to risk his own inheritance. This leads to number three, the deliverer. Boaz as the deliverer. He delivered, ultimately, Naomi from this huge tragedy of a lost husband, lost sons, and the affliction of having no family and no way to keep her husband's lineage going, but he comes to the rescue, so to speak, doesn't he? Tragedy to triumph. So Boaz is the type of Christ. He's the hero of the story. And so from the gloomy trials of life that Naomi thought God was against her, all of a sudden Boaz comes to the scene, begins to replace that tragedy with triumph, with blessing and joy to a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. As one commentator wrote, his provision for the widow Naomi was but the first fruit. I like this. The provision, protection, deliverance of Naomi with what all he did was but the first fruit of a greater harvest. The provision of King David and ultimately the provision of the greatest king of all, his only begotten son, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So beloved, this short story, this book of Ruth exists for the ultimate reason it points us to the larger picture of Jesus Christ. Not just Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, but this little book called Ruth. So when you're in your Bibles, who are you looking for? Jesus. Look for him first. Not, I can say my theology correctly or soundly. Not so I could be some wonderful, moral, righteous person. Not so I can tell you the Ten Commandments or impress you with how much scripture I've memorized or how spiritual I am. No, 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 and no. You can do all those things and yet miss out on Christ. You're just as lost as the atheist. You're just as lost as the atheist. If all you do is grow in the knowledge of God's word without coming to the person of Jesus Christ, you're still on your way to hell. Damnation awaits those who search the scriptures and never come to Christ. And that to me is the most it's the tragedious, you know, the most tragic story there is. In other words, not coming out right, but you get the point. It is. Listen to Ephesians chapter one. Because just as in Boaz, God provided, and through Boaz, 
He protected through Boaz. He, he delivered Naomi and, and with Ruth and all that were provided for them. In Christ, listen, in Christ, we are given an inheritance. In Christ, God provides. In Christ, we are given everything pertaining to life and godliness. In Christ. And there's no better portion of Scripture to come to to explain this than Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to end with this. So we got at least 30 minutes more to go. A couple of you are awake, but you chuckle. The rest of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Anyway, chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's provision. Yes, when God provides, we should think of physical provision. But how often do we think of spiritual provision? That lasts forever. Food lasts temporarily. This body, this, it's only temporary. But what about the spiritual blessings, the spiritual provisions? Listen to this. I'm going to just write down next to that, that verse 3. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1 for a minute. We were there uh, maybe last week or a couple weeks ago. I want to read this to you. Peter picks on this, picks this up very well. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has given or granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, you're not lacking anything. When it comes to being a child of God, you lack nothing to have that child of God walk. God has given you what? What? Listen. Some things? Almost everything you need? God has given you everything for life and godliness. What does it mean life and godliness? To walk as a Christian, to be his child. He's given you everything. Let's, let's go on to see what else he means by this. Through, where does it come through? He's given us everything through something. It comes through. It's like a channel, okay? A conduit through which, through the true knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and excellence. The gospel. It comes through the gospel. It comes through the word of God. Verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Everything he's given us includes what? A promise of eternal life. A promise of eternal life. So that by them you may become partakers of what? Oh, this is heavy. What's your Bible say? Mine says divine nature. Whoa, whoa, time out. Whoa, 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 whoa. Really? The by them, what's them referring to? By the magnificent promises we get from the gospel as we back up in the passage a little bit. By them, that you may become what? Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. What's going on here? He said, God has promised to make you a partaker of the divine nature. And he wants you to start going towards that now. Why? Because you've escaped the corruption because you're in Christ. You've escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Verse 5. Now, for this very reason, because of verses 3, 4, and 5, I want you to do something, he said. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to apply all diligence. I want you to work hard. Spiritually speaking, in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. Notice where he says, you believe me. You trust me. Okay? So, you got that faith. You got that saving faith. Here's what saving faith does. It supplies these things. It supplies them. Why? Because I know God's destiny for me. 
for me is partakers of the divine nature. When you get to heaven, you're not going to sin anymore. What do you think it means to have divine nature? You're going to be a new creature in Christ. You will no longer have that old residual, old man, old flesh hanging on you anymore. It will be impossible for you to sin when you're in glory with Jesus and his kingdom. With the mansion he's built for you. John 14, 6, right? 1 through 6. So in that place that is perfect, you will be perfect. In that sense, you will partake of the divine nature. That is God's promise to his children, beloved. That's what carries us through the darkest moments of life and the deepest of valleys. It's that fact. It's that truth. And, and go back to Ephesians. This is so, we can't lose this. We can't lose this. Ephesians chapter 1, we were in verse 3. We went over to Peter for a minute. Now we're coming back to Ephesians. Let's pick up in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God had all your salvation planned out before you were born. Actually, he had your salvation planned out before you were what? Created. Before creation. Before Genesis 1. God had everything under control. Before you read Genesis 1-1, God said, I have a plan. Plan of redemption because I know what's going to happen. And I'm going to carry this thing out. That's why all the short stories of the New Testament and the Old Testament all fall under the heading of God's ultimate plan of redemption. Amen? So God had you in mind. Not just Adam and Eve. Okay? Isn't that incredible? We're getting to understand that God is a little bit here. How vast his mind is. And why is it important? Because he knows the hairs of your head. He knows everywhere you go. He knows what you do. Psalm 139. Why do you think the psalmist wrote Psalm 139? God knows your thoughts before you even thank them. He knows what you're going to look like and who you're going to be as you're even in your mother's womb as he's forming you. That's why abortion is so hideous and heinous. Amen? But see, once you take God as creator, you can do whatever you want with creation, including murdering fetuses, right? Right? Just a little, come back a little bit. Okay. Ephesians 1. Look at verse 5. He predestined us to adoption. He predetermined to adopt me. Predetermined beforehand. He, he set out to adopt me. He set out to adopt you. Don't you love the term adoption? That's a great answer to not wanting a baby. Go ahead and have it and let somebody adopt it. The analogies just go. But notice this. I love this part. Last verse 5. According to the kind intention of his will. Verse 6. To the praise of his glory. I want you to look at verse 6 for a minute. The phrase to the praise of his glory is mentioned three times in these 14 verses. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. So everything you read about what God is doing in these verses is for what? To the praise of his glory. Your adoption, your salvation is to result in us praising him for his glory. That's what that is all about. Notice verse 7 now. In him. Notice in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him. Verse 7, in him. Verse 9, in him. Verse 10, in him. Verse 13, in him. Notice the phrase five times. In him, in him, in him. That is beloved in Christ. Paul is painting the picture of who we are in Christ. What God has done for us in Christ. 
That's why if you don't come to Christ when you're in the scriptures, you're still lost. That's why every sermon, and I've learned this over the years, I've not been perfect with this whatsoever, not at all. I've done it more and more the older I've got. However, every sermon, every teaching should have somewhere, somewhere in it the weaving of the gospel. If not woven through, at the end of it. You should, any portion or passage of scripture you're in, you can always bring that theologically, doctrinally, to the foot of Jesus, to the gospel. That's the beauty of scripture. Well, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I love the word lavish. It's like taking this bucket and just dousing somebody with water, just pouring it all over them. He's just lavished it on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind of intention which he purposed. There's that phrase, in him. He had a purpose in Christ. You think God is going to achieve his purpose in Christ? Did God leave the fulfilling of his purpose up to us? No. He's going to do it. With or without you. Amen? Look at verse 11. No, no, I'll just keep going. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, he's explaining himself here, the summing up of all things in Christ. In the fullness of times, he is going to sum up everything in Christ. Think of that picture for a moment. Everything that's created, all the events of history, are going to one day be summed up in Christ. Everything will be, everything created, everything that has breath, will be brought to subjection to Jesus Christ, whether that thing or that person knows him or not. Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, whether they're saved or not, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Where will we be on that day? Will we be in Christ or outside of Christ? Will we be able to say, hey, I found eternal life in the scriptures? No. Jesus said, no, they were pointing to me the whole time. You were in the scriptures, but you never came to me. Depart from me. I never knew you. And so verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance in him. In verse 10, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Not only are everything summed up in Christ, but we have an inheritance having been predestined, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Oh, I love that. Praise God for his will. Praise God for the counsel of his will. Praise God for a sovereign will. Right? If his will wasn't sovereign, we'd be in bad shape, folks. Okay? Verse 12, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. There's that phrase again. Verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, here's the phrase, you were sealed. Protection. Provision, protection. Boaz, provision, protection. Right? Here we have in verse 13, you were sealed. That word means mark, stamped, security. That's what the Greek word means. It's, 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 the king had a signet ring. 
And he would have wax there. And if he had a document on a turned wall, he would take his ring and put it in wax and he'd smack it down on that piece of paper and make it wall. That's the idea here. It was sealed. To be sealed means you have eternal security. You cannot be unsealed. If you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you can't be undwelt. Okay? And that's what he's getting at. So not only does he provide for you and give you everything you need, he protects you as well. And part of that protection, Hebrew says, is Christ is right there advocating on your behalf every moment of every day. Even at your worst moments. When you lost your temper, or lost to take it over, or you swore, you got an advocate. First John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. He's your Savior, Jesus Christ, who's interceding on your behalf. Not just on your good days, beloved, but on your worst of days. That's good news. So we'll finish with verse 14. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. How do I know I'm going to inherit this? Be given the Holy Spirit. He's, my, he's God's pledge to me that I will carry out my promise to you. And my promise is, whatever is my son's, because you're in him, it's going to be yours also. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession. And then in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Let's start praising him now. Amen. Boaz, a type of Christ, provider, protector, deliverer. It's not enough just to come to the scriptures, but to see the God of scriptures, particularly his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, God, for opening up our minds, giving us the mind of Christ to not just see him, but to long for him to want to be with him, to look forward to being with him and to seeing him, to wanting to know him more and more and never getting enough of him. God, I pray for us that we would be marked by that. That would be one of our characteristics is is such as profound desire and longing to have more of Christ. And looking forward that day that you promised where we will see him face to face and that nothing we would quench that vision of being with Jesus. Not possessions, not people, nothing, not a car, a house, money, investments, none of that would squash the excitement and the desire and the passion to be with Christ and to see Him in His fullness. And until that day, oh God, you give us everything to get us ready for that moment when He is revealed to the universe's creation. So God, help us to take one day at a time, being diligent to add to our faith those qualities we read about in your word, so that when Christ comes, we will not shy away, but we will run headlong to him, not embarrassed, not ashamed, but ready to see our Savior and to be with him. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.